If you would, go ahead and open a Bible to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 is where we'll be reading from in just a moment. Good to see you this morning. We have a number of visitors with us. We're always grateful for you to be here. We want you to feel welcome. Thank you so much for choosing to join us this morning. If we can help you in some way to know more about Jesus, know more about what we do, or if there's any way we can help you, please let us know about that. I also want to remind you uh, that our Bible workshop weekend is coming up, not this Friday and Saturday, but next week. It would be March 8th and 9th. Now, on the 8th, that's a Friday night. We'll be meeting here. Everyone is invited. Uh, we're going to have our singing at 7 o'clock here at the building, and it's always a, a great opportunity to worship God, a great event. We always have a lot of people here and a lot of the young people who are here for the weekend. So I want to encourage everyone to be here if they can next Friday night, March the 8th. And then on Saturday the 9th is when we have the young people here. Usually, as Brother Kerry said, we have uh, from about middle school to about age 25-ish. But we're kind of fuzzy on the edges on that, so that's okay. Uh, but I uh, wanted you to know about that. And if uh, any of our young people have not yet registered, please do that. Register online uh, so that we can know who all's coming and how many to expect with that. But be in prayer about that. And uh, we're looking forward to that. That's one of the great things that this congregation does, an effort that we've been putting forth for a number of years now uh, to help and bless the young people. We have Chris Emerson, who's coming to lead that workshop. Uh, Chris has been here at different points in the past, and Chris will be here on that Sunday. He will be staying over and preach for us that Sunday, March the 10th. So be looking forward to that uh, and be in prayer about that. All right. I want to say... Um, I'm glad that we have visitors here, and we appreciate your presence, but I want you to know uh, the things that I'm going to focus on this morning are really directed toward the members of this church. And so if you have a little bit of an outsider-looking-in feel, uh, that's not my intent, but I wanted you to warn. I wanted to warn you that that may be uh, the way some of these things may come across. So the reason I'm down here is that I think we need to have a talk. I think we need to say some things and think about some things about who we are and what we're doing as a group. And I want to ask the question this morning, what kind of church are we going to be? There's a power in declaring what we want, a commitment. This is who I'm going to be. This is what we're going to do. Sometimes in the Bible, that is pictured as God calling the people together and having a leader challenge the people. You remember Joshua, who calls the people together after the conquering of the land of Canaan. And he says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So he challenges the people. Who are you going to serve? Will you serve these idols or will you serve the Lord? And he says, for me, I'll serve the Lord. And of course, the people respond, we will serve the Lord. Or Elijah calls the prophets of Baal together on Mount Carmel, along with all the nation of Israel who has gone after idols and he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now, they don't answer Elijah. 
But after Elijah's demonstration of God's power, they do. So it's my hope this morning that I can challenge us in a similar way. I am not Joshua. I'm not Elijah. But it seems to me that we need to ask the question, what kind of church are we going to be? And there is something interesting that happens when we talk about church. Because we have a tendency to think of the church as everybody else. Church is them. Church is maybe the organization. Maybe it's the elders. Maybe it's the building. Maybe it's just certain people in the church. But we very rarely think of the church as me. But we know that the New Testament teaches that the people are the church. So I cannot expect this church to be something that I'm not going to be. So it is not just that we're going to talk this morning about what we are. We're going to talk about the culture that each one of us contributes to as we meet in this place. And I want to ask the question, what kind of people are we going to be? First of all, will we be Bible-focused people? Look in Acts 17 with me in verse 11. In Acts 17 and verse 11, now these Jews, talking about the Jews in Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. The most interesting thing to me about this passage is the word eagerness. You see it there in verse 11. They received the word with all eagerness. That is an attitude word. These people do not look at Bible study as a duty. They are not bored by Paul's preaching. And they are not bored by the idea that they may have to go and find in the Old Testament where what he is saying is either true or false. They are eager to do it. That is a healthy attitude. To see Bible study as a positive and enjoyable thing is a healthy attitude. To see Bible study as a drudgery is a spiritual sickness. It is a problem. If the Bible study is boring, that is a problem. Now, I am not saying that all Bible classes are positive and enjoyable. Some Bible classes are boring. I am saying that Bible study is not and should not be, that we can be eager to do it. And this is one of my concerns about our group. I am concerned about our Bible study. We need to be studying the Bible on our own, for ourselves. We need to be eager to study the Bible. And there are a number of reasons for that. But I want to tell you that's the reason why I do what I do. It's the reason why for the last two plus years, every weekday, I don't get up at 3 a.m., but I send out at 3 a.m., a daily devotional with a bit of scripture and a bit of encouragement. It's not because I'm just bored and I don't have anything to do with my time. It's because I want to encourage you to study the Bible on a daily, regular basis. That's the reason why when I preach, I get up and I say, turn to this passage because I really do want you to turn to that passage because that's what we're doing. We're going to study the Bible, and we're going to do it regularly. We're going to make a habit about it. And the Bereans show us the value in being passionate about that. 
that they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness and they searched the scriptures daily to figure out if those things were so. Being Bible-focused is important because there are a whole lot of people trying to sell you a whole lot of things today. Have you noticed? Should we be speaking in tongues? The world going to end on April 12th? Does God just want you to be happy? Should we be supporting the modern nation of Israel? It's a lot of questions. How are we going to figure out the answers to those questions? Well, we could say, well, what do you think? But you know as well as I do that we might think different things about those things. The question we have to ask is, what does God say? What does God want? And the only way we're going to know that is to be Bible focused. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. The other reason why this is so important, or at least another reason, is because we tend not to listen to things that challenge us. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy 4 and verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Being Bible-focused is important because we tend not to listen to things that challenge us. If they challenge us, if they mean that we're going to have to change something personally, we're going to have to rethink something that's a studied conclusion of ours, we tend to, Paul is saying, we tend to turn away from that and to go into things that will satisfy itching ears, things that are myths, because we don't want the truth. Now, my question is, do we think that we're somehow immune from that spirit? That somehow because we attend a church of Christ, that we're different? That it's not possible for us to have itching ears? And I also want you to notice that Paul says people who do that begin, verse 3, to accumulate for themselves teachers. It affects the church, doesn't it? Because if what we want is less Bible, then we're going to get somebody who gives us less Bible. There's a connection there. If those are the people we're going to be, then that's the church we're going to be. So what kind of church are we going to be? But perhaps most importantly, being Bible-focused is important because I need to hear from God in my daily life. I need to hear from God between Sunday and Wednesday and Wednesday and Sunday. There is more to my life than what goes on these few hours that we're here at the building. I need to hear God's perspective on the pressing issues of my time. I need to hear what God thinks about how I raise my kids and how I treat my wife. I need to hear how I can sometimes be too proud or too worldly or too negative or out of control spiritually. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy when he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need God's word to be renewed and restored and sustained. 
Only the Bible gives me that. So I need to be Bible-focused. So do you have that passion? Can I ask it this way? In all the time that you spend on social media or at school events or working or talking with friends or planning for leisure time, is there a place for communing with God? Do you have that passion when we gather together? That it's not just about seeing our people that we love. It's not just about who's preaching or teaching. That it's about communing with God. That I need to be engaged when I'm here because then I can understand more deeply what God is saying to me. What kind of church are we going to be? I'm concerned. And I am disturbed. Sometimes we have Bible classes where we don't crack a Bible. Sometimes we seem to enjoy studying the words of men more than the words of God. Sometimes we seem to enjoy discussing our own thoughts more than God's thoughts. And frankly, I think this entire group would be embarrassed if I were to share with you the percentage of us who actually read the daily devotionals. question is, are we happy with that? Is that the church we want to be? Are we going to be Bible-focused or not? And I might just add this. Although it's not specifically about being Bible-focused, we've changed our services to where we have a morning service. I used to brag about this group because at Sunday morning to Sunday night, we didn't have the huge drop-off that I've seen at other places. But I don't brag anymore, not about that. Because we have a lot of people who have evidently changed their schedules to not be here at 9, where they used to be here at 9. That's concerning to me. Because I have to ask the question, if we have an opportunity to learn and to be together, why are we saying no to that? What kind of church are we going to be, brothers? Will we be close to each other? The New Testament church was close. This is Acts 4.32. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. Acts 2. All who believed were together and had all things in common day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. Christians in the New Testament were close. They spent time together. They were of one heart and soul. These are brand new Christians. Many of them had come to Jerusalem from far-flung parts of the empire. They didn't know each other. They didn't live together. And all of a sudden you throw them together and they are of one heart and soul. They were close because their primary commitment was to Jesus. And so they united together under that banner. In our congregation, we have a number of people who have been here for quite a while. Some of you grew up together, you know each other, and have a long history together. But we also have, and this is a newer development, but we also have a number of people who didn't even grow up in this state 
who are not from here. And so the question is, well, how do we, how do we mesh all that together? If we've got a lot of people who know each other and have a lot of history and a lot of people who don't know each other and don't have a lot of history, well, the answer is pretty simple. We do what they did. We focus on Jesus. We spend time together. That's what they did, and that's how they got close, so close that they were of one heart and one soul. Well, why does it matter if we're close? I mean, what's the big deal about that? Well, when the Bible describes this, it uses a lot of different metaphors, but I think the most powerful, at least for me, is the, the metaphor of family, that we are intended to be a family. We, are, we call each other brother and sister because we have that close relationship. Family are people that we can share everything with. They know us, and they love us anyway. Close matters. Family matters because we need to be able to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And if you don't know me, you can't bear my burdens. And if I don't know you, I can't bear yours. So are we going to be the kind of church where we only find out about other people's burdens when everything falls apart? Is that the kind of church we want to be? Or Will we know and help and restore and pray for one another and be there for one another? What kind of church are we going to be? The other reason that this matters is because we need to be close to people to have someone to help us with our sin. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3 and verse 12 says, Hebrews 3 and verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I want you to notice in verse 13, he talks about the deceitfulness of sin. It's in the nature of sin to lead us to believe that it's not as big a deal as it is, to deceive us about its consequences. He also tells us that we can be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, that we can become callous, or we don't care anymore. That sin has a way of numbing us to how bad it is. But do you know how we get out of that? In both cases, the Hebrew writer's answer is, we look to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Exhort one another every day so that nobody has an opportunity to get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So this entire verse assumes a level of closeness that allows us to speak into the deep struggles of one another's lives. I know what you're going through, and I'm there to pick you up and say, you're doing great, don't quit. The past few months, we've lost two of our brothers. They've left their wives for other women. They have, as far as I know, stopped serving Jesus. And I know that that is incredibly painful for the families that have left behind. 
I know that many of you have expressed to me your shock, your dismay. It has hurt us, and it should hurt us because we are family. But in both of those cases, one of the things that has concerned me most is the fact that there were serious problems in these men's lives, and they didn't feel close enough to any of us to share them with us. There was no one to say, I'm starting to feel this. I'm worried about this. There was no one to warn them, be careful with that, brother. You've got to stop this. I don't bring that up to say it's anybody's fault. I don't mean that. I say it because it underscores in deep pain a lesson we must learn as a church. That when I can't trust my brothers, when I hide my struggles and my sins from you, there comes a point, it is almost inevitable, where I begin to play church and put up a facade for you where my heart is far from God. Maybe it doesn't always end this way. But I don't want it to go down that road for me. And I'll tell you, I've been in similar situations, personally. I've done things that I'm deeply ashamed of, and I didn't want anybody to know. I certainly didn't want my brethren to know. And the more I hid it, the worse it got. The more distant I felt, the weaker I got, the more of a hypocrite I became. And I became numb to it, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I nearly lost everything. And if it were not for the fact that I began to develop deep, open, close, vulnerable relationships with my brothers and with my wife, I would not be here today. I would certainly not be preaching. We need to be close. Go with me to James chapter 5. James 5 and verse 16. James 5 and 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Confess your sins to one another, he says. And pray for one another that you may be healed. What kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to be the kind of church where we all pretend we're perfect? Where nobody ever lets their guard down about anything? Are we going to be the kind of church that when someone does reach out to us and say, I've had trouble with this, we condemn them and reject them? Or will we be the kind of church that actually lives and practices James 5.16, where we confess our sins and we pray for one another so that healing can happen? Now, I'm not saying that I need to tell everybody in the church all my sins or that anybody needs to tell everybody all their sins. I'm not saying you need to tell me or you need to tell the elders. This passage says, confess your trespasses to one another. I am saying, when I have a problem, I need a brother that I can reach out to. And if I don't have that now, I need to develop it now. Now. And I am challenging you that if you don't have someone in this group that you can reach out to about the serious spiritual matters of the heart, 
you need to develop that. We need to be close to one another. I have heard criticisms about this, about different churches for years. Part of the time, I have been the critic. But at some point, we have to say, you know what? I am the church. And if I'm not close to anybody in the church, it's because I'm not close to anybody in the church. It's not their fault. It's not your fault. At some point, I need to work to put myself out there. Verse 16 also talks about praying for one another that you may be healed. I want to say a little word about that to those of us who might have someone honor us by confessing something to us. There's a reason why it's important for us to share spiritual things like this with people who are our brothers in Christ. It's because these are the people we should be able to trust to have the best spiritual sense. That's why we need people who will think and respond in the best way. We need brothers and sisters in Christ. And when our brothers honor us by reaching out, sharing their fears and doubts and sins, we respond with love and understanding and support. It is tempting when someone tells us something they have done that is wrong for us to react with condemnation. It is tempting to rebuke. But I am saying, if what's happening is they're saying, I did wrong, they already know they did wrong. They don't need us to condemn them. They need us to support and pray with them so that they can be forgiven. They need help. But if someone were to share something deeply personal and embarrassing, and our brother laughs at them or scorns them or gossips about them, how close are we going to be? What kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to be the kind of church that's really close? Will we be faithful in our relationships? Part of who we are as a church is what we are at home and at work and with our friends and in everyday life. Very often, the New Testament speaks about this by using the idea of blaspheming. People watching us and then making conclusions about God based on what they see in us. And I want you to notice, I'm going to put some of these on the board. I want you to notice how many of these are about daily life. 1 Timothy 6.1, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So here you have slaves, and the way they serve as slaves can lead to the gospel being reviled or not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So here are younger widows. Paul's concerned about them being busybodies, them not doing the will of God, and then other people see that and say, oh, that's what a Christian is? No thanks. Titus 2.5, also speaking about younger women, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Notice, this is not stuff that's happening in a church building or at worship. These are things that are in everyday life that can lead to people reviling the word of God. Talking about Titus himself, the preacher, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So if you have speech that can be condemned, they have something to say. They have some ammunition. This is Romans 2 and verse 21. Paul is talking to his Jewish audience. He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? 
You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Preaching one thing, doing another. Going to church and saying, Amen. And then going home and doing the exact opposite. The idea, as you know, is that we represent God to those around us. But that representation must be more than just what we say we believe. It's got to be deeper. It's got to be about who we really are. There is a power in the testimony of faithfulness. I talked about faithful here. Faithfulness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. When we look at people and we say, you know, they're great people. They're a great family. They're faithful in their marriages. They're great parents. They're honest. They're kind. Doesn't it make you just a little bit want to look into what they believe if you know people like that? i got to tell you, it does me. I felt that way about the Mormons. If I evaluate Mormon teaching, not interested. Mormon teaching is, I don't believe it at all. But there are some really fine people who are Mormons. When you get to know them and you see they're really fine people, they're honest people, they're good people, they're good family people, you say, huh, I wonder... Let me, let me learn a little more. There's a draw to that. How much more when we're believing the gospel of Jesus? So, what about this church? What kind of testimony are we going to have from our relationships? Will we have husbands and fathers who are deeply committed to Jesus, who love their wives sacrificially, who honor their wives and work to understand them, who give up their own will to bless their families, who speak kindly at all times and refuse to be harsh with their children, who teach and guide their children to be more like Jesus. Are we going to have men like that? Are we going to have wives and mothers who possess the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, willing to submit, blessing their families with love, patience, and faith, providing their children with nurture and teaching and discipline and support? What kind of workers are we going to have? Are we going to be workers who do our jobs faithfully and well and honestly and consistently, who our bosses are going to say, well, I don't believe what he believes. That guy's a great worker. Will we be friends that other people feel happy to know, eager to lean on, perhaps even ready to ask the deeper questions? Will we be growing in our self-discipline and in our joy and in our gentleness and in our humility so that other people look at us and say, Something's happening in them. What kind of church are we going to be? I'm suggesting that we need a passion for living out what we know. We know what God expects us to do daily. But we need a passion to be a great husband and father, a great wife and mother, a great light to the world in our workplaces and in our schools. Now, I see a lot of good things about this from this group. And I want to say that. I see a lot of people in this church who have a tremendous testimony in the community, who people know and know well and speak well of. They do it to me. They speak well of you to me. But I'm concerned that sometimes we take our Christianity off when we leave here. And we go back to normal. Let the record show I'm using air quotes here. We go back to normal. We yell at the kids. We fixate on our own stuff. 
We get so wrapped up in our own stress and our own work and our own accomplishments that we don't see the kind of character we exhibit along the way. We live minute to minute. I said in the beginning of this lesson that there is a power in declaring who we are and what we're going to be. There's a power there. Choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve. So, having seen a couple of our brothers leave us, leave the Lord, is discouraging. It's disheartening. But the question has to come, what are we going to do? What kind of church are we going to be? And I declare that I'm going to do the best I can to be faithful in my relationships. I will do all that I can. I have watched a lot of men fall. But I've got to say, I am no different. I am not better. I am not immune. But I'm going to do all I can to make sure this doesn't happen to me. My question is, what about you? What about us? What kind of church are we going to be? If I were to sum all this up, I would say that my concern about the church that we are and the church that we're going to be, the best way to describe it is complacency. I'm concerned that we don't have the eagerness and passion of the Bereans, at least not yet. I'm concerned that we don't have the intensity that comes from sharing our hearts and lives, at, at least not yet. And I'm concerned that the focus on faithfulness and blessing those around us is not where it needs to be, at least not yet. So I challenge you. What are you going to do? What kind of church are we going to be? Would you pray with me about it? Our God and Father, we are so thankful to you that you have blessed us so richly, that you've enabled us to gather together this morning as your people. Father, we're thankful for your word that guides us and teaches us and shows us who we are. And Father, I'm thankful for this group of your people, for the opportunity we have to serve and worship together and to blend our lives together. Father, we ask for your blessing and your help as we think about the direction we take as a group. I pray, Father, that you will help us, each one of us, to be focused on you and focused on your word, to not forget the commitment we've made to Jesus. I pray that you'll be with each one of us, that we can develop relationships that will help us to stay close to you, even when we struggle. And I pray that you'll be with each one of us and help us as we try to live your word out in our daily lives. Father, as we need help and as we often fail, we ask you to supply that help. Father, as we sometimes need courage to reach out to others and to reach out to our brothers and sisters, we ask that you'll supply it. And Father, we pray your blessings on your people here as we work together, that we'll be a people truly following you and truly making one another more and more into the image of Christ. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Might be someone here this morning who needs to obey the gospel. We haven't talked this morning about the benefits and the great joy that comes when knowing that your sins are forgiven. But you need to know that God sent his son. Jesus came from heaven and became a man, lived as a man in a perfect way, and then offered himself freely on the cross. And he did all of that so that your sins could be taken away, so that the things you've done can be forgiven, so that you can have hope of eternal life. 
And if you need to have that forgiveness and you're ready to turn away from your sins, we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.